When chocolate first made its way from Mexico to Europe, it was only consumed as a drink. But it was in Italy that they invented the chocolate bar. Someone, some genius in Torino, we don't know who it was, decided, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to preserve chocolate and eat it rather than just drink it? Coming up, Fred Plotkin helps us find the best chocolate in Europe. Jane and Michael Stern help us enjoy memorable wintertime comfort food all around America. In Connecticut, we're just getting the first bushels of cranberries from the bogs in Massachusetts. Katerina Svobodova shares warm memories of visiting the neighbors for Christmas where she grew up in Prague. You know, it's very common that you go family by family and they have like 12 or 15 or even 20 different kinds of these little tiny cookies. And listeners tell us of their favorite holiday travels. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If a bon vivant like Fred Plotkin says it's good, you know it's going to be sensational. In just a bit, Fred tells us where to find the best chocolate in Europe and how the different ways they prepare their confections from one country to another might best suit your taste buds. We'll also get in the mood for Christmas with a look at the holiday traditions of Prague and listener tales from overseas travels during the holiday season. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a generous serving of wintertime comfort food from around America. Jane and Michael Stern have been on the road for more than 40 years, finding the casual diners and drive-ins where regional favorites and family recipes are at the heart of the menu. Their Road Food Guide is in its 10th edition, and they take suggestions at their roadfood.com website. Jane and Michael, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Hi, Rick. Hi. Now, it's, uh, it's holiday season. Uh, it's Hanukkah. It's Christmas is coming up. Some people are going for long drives to relatives and getting a, a little winter break. You know, you guys, I, I kind of think of road food as, as not necessarily winter, but of course, now that I think about it, there's plenty of dimensions for enjoying road food, even in the dead of winter, even around Christmas time and Hanukkah. Well, you know, a lot of people don't like to cook. So that brings up, well, what do I do with my family if I have 30 relatives and I don't feel like, you know, spending four days in the kitchen? More and more people are going to restaurants for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, and that's always been one of our favorite things to do. So we've always kept a short list of our favorite holiday places. Tell us some good places for a big family get-together in the holidays. Well, there's one place, if anybody happens to be traveling near uh, Edison, New Jersey, there was one restaurant called Harold's New York Deli, and it's in New Jersey despite the name. And it is the ultimate, and I really mean the ultimate, New York deli. When I say that, I'm talking about not only is the food terrific. I mean, this is some of the best pastrami, potato pancakes. I mean, classic Jewish deli food, plus other things, but matzo balls. Not only is it really good, I mean, first-rate cooking, like your grandmother should have made if she was a good cook. It is gigantic. It's like comically, cartoonishly huge. For example, if you get a large pastrami sandwich— at Harold's New York Deli. It is literally, I mean this literally, I'm not talking figuratively, it is literally 18 to 24 inches tall. A party of four can get one pastrami sandwich, split it four ways, and each of the four take home leftovers to have pastrami hash the next morning. And they're happy with people doing that? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Nobody, nobody leaves Harold's Deli 
without uh, leftovers. Yeah, which really brings up the point of the one thing that is a problem about restaurant eating during the holidays is, well, of course, where are the leftovers? But at a place ah. like Harold's, you will have, believe me, you will have leftovers. The thing that tickles me about Harold's is Hanukkah always gets kind of like, I don't know, it's like the, the third cousin of, <laughs> of Christmas. Right. You know, being Jewish, I always, you know, like I would say, well, where are all the houses, you know, with the great Hanukkah lights that we could drive by at night and look at, you know, and, you know, you, you just don't see that abulence that you do with Christmas. And Harold's just by the kind of hugeness of the place, the overkill of the food, the the kind of rambunctious. <laughs> it's Hanukkah's revenge. It is Hanukkah's revenge. It's, you know, there's nothing modest or second rate about Harold's yeah. for the holidays. And by the way, Harold's is open on Christmas Day if you're looking for a place to go on Christmas Day. To me, a great celebratory food, it's something called gribbiness. I'm not even sure how to spell it, but it's what you get when you render chicken fat, little pieces of chicken fat skin. It's actually kind of the Jewish cognate of southern cracklins. Basically, it's deep fried fat. Right. Well, I have I have to make a confession. I grew up in midtown Manhattan. And I don't know what the deal was with my parents who were both Jewish, but we celebrated Easter. We celebrated Hanukkah. We celebrated Purim. We celebrated Christmas. I think anything when you could eat and there were <laughs> gifts, you know, that was fine. And one of the greatest ways of celebrating Christmas was my parents' apartment was right across the street from an Eastern Orthodox monastery. And the monks used to invite us over there at Christmas for borscht. Yeah. And borscht is a wonderful, you know, bright red, gorgeous holiday, Christmassy, Hanukkah looking dish. So I I think, you know, if there's food and presents and friends or family, who cares? You write about Clifton Mill near Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yes, Clifton Mill. I mean, if you want to really celebrate Christmas or view an unbelievable celebration of Christmas, Clifton Mill, which is a terrific restaurant serving kind of real country food, including even like cornmeal mush in the morning. But the main reason we would want to talk about Clifton Mill today is that it has the most incredible Christmas display you will ever see. The buildings there are covered with 3.5 <laughs> million lights illuminating this thing. And when they turn on these lights, the trees, the bridges, the gorge, the mill, they all just glow with just a kind of unbelievable, a, a magical sense about it. There's a 100-foot waterfall, the entire thing illuminated with twinkling lights. Is it magical or is it kitsch or is it both? Both. Both. <laughs> Without a doubt, it's both. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jane and Michael Stern. They're uh, well-known for their classic book, Road Food, and uh, their website is roadfood.com. And I understand in your website you've got a lot of interactivity so people can share their tips and share notes and learn from other people's experience too. Yeah, in several ways. If somebody wants to actually post a review of a restaurant that they like along with photographs, there's a whole method for doing that. Or if they want to be a little less formal about it, we've got different forums devoted to favorite subjects. There's a hamburger forum, a, uh, a seafood forum. There's a, a trips forum where people can post trip reports. You know, I, I get the joy of talking to a lot of art historians and, and tour guides and so on, and I feel like I'm talking to passionate art historians here, but the, the art is 
you know, comfort food and road food and, and uh, typical American food. Uh, well, you know, we were art historians. Oh, really? Like I we, didn't know that. Yeah, when we met at Yale, we were studying. We were so Michael's you take that passion for culture and you put it yeah. on, your, on an edible kind of sightseeing for your tongue. Cultural anthropology or, or whatever. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Diane is calling in from Santa Fe. Hi, Diane. Hi. Santa Fe is really a great special place this time of year. And I was wondering, uh, you know, if you had any memories of Santa Fe that, uh, you know, you might want to share. (laughs) A few. (laughs) No, I mean, I think the point needs to be made, for those who are unaware of it, is that New Mexico is very proud of the fact that the food you get in New Mexico is not Mexican food. It's not Calmex. It's not Tex-Mex. It's New Mexican cuisine, which has dishes and a style all its own. And, in fact, on the subject of the holidays, as you know, I'm sure, Diane, you know, when you order, um, say, enchiladas there— They'll ask you if you want red or green chili on them. And the right answer to that question for me is, I want Christmas, which means you want red and green chili. (laughs) That's right. Santa Fe is also the most beautiful place with all the luminarias out. Do you agree, I mean, that it just takes on a magical look about it at Christmas? Well, it does. Christmas Eve, uh, Canyon Road, which is lined with art galleries, is lined with luminarias so that people could walk down Canyon Road to the cathedral for Christmas services. Oh. And also because you're the high altitude there, the stars sparkle in a way you just don't see anywhere else in the United States. It gives your Christmas season a, a whole different kind of uh, carbonation, doesn't it? It really does. Diane, thanks for your call. You're welcome. And enjoy your Christmas. Thank you. You too. Jane and Michael Stern are sharing American comfort foods for the holidays with us on Travel with Rick Steves. They've published their Road Food Guide since 1977, and their website is roadfood.com. When you think about fine gastronomy, you think about eating with the season. Is that wisdom of eating with the season, does that apply much to your line of of work and eating, or is it sort of Absolutely. Without a doubt. In your neck of the woods, Rick, I love Dungeness crab. And if I want to eat the best Dungeness crab, I'm not going to come to the Pacific Northwest in May. I want to be there in November. Right. And similarly, you know, if you want the world's best blueberry pie, you got to come to Maine in the summertime because that's Ah. when the blueberries are absolutely fresh and they're those little, unbelievably tasty Maine blueberries. And in Oregon, the the hazelnut harvests and the chili harvest in Hatch, New Mexico. Oh, my gosh, yes. We're getting back to New Mexico. So in the winter... In the winter, what specialties do you look for and where? Well, actually, that's in the fall, the Mm -hmm. chili harvest. And most restaurants that really pay attention to it will have great freshly made chili from fall through the winter. A lot of them will start running out in the spring if they didn't stock up on enough chili. And now in Connecticut, we're getting the first bushels of cranberries from the bogs in Massachusetts. I would imagine as you guys assess the quality of places, you are paying attention to do they even care about seasonality? Because I would imagine a lot of places don't. Well, a lot of them don't. And I mean, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But I mm-hmm. mean, you know, when you want a great peach pie, I mean, how much better is it if those peaches are absolutely fresh in Georgia? Seasonality is obviously a, a wonderful thing, but regionality is really what kind of road food is. That's the distinction. That makes a the lot of distinction. sense. The yeah. distinction. So, you know, we would not be ordering clam chowder in Montana. Right. <laughs> um, so it's not just what is of the season and farm to table, which is terrific, mm-hmm. but does it belong there? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't get abalone in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
So, you know, you really have to eat the right thing in the right place. And that's exactly what you are offering to all of your readers and your your happy eaters. Just like you need a good guidebook to know where to see the Van Goghs and where to see the Michelangelos, you need to know what to eat and what part of our our fascinating country. You need a Rick Steves. Ah, Well, we got (laughs) Jane and Michael Stern doing Road Food. Again, the uh, website is roadfood.com, and uh, it's always fun to talk to you guys. Thanks so much, and happy holidays. Same to you, Rick. Same to you, Rick. I just came back from a lonely trip along the Milky Way. Stopped off at the North Pole to spend a holiday. I called on dear old Santa Claus to see what I could see. He took me to his workshop and told his plans to me. Better watch out, better not cry, better not pout, I'm telling you why. Checking it twice Gonna find out who's naughty or nice Santa Claus is coming to town If you're having a hard time feeling festive The simple pleasure of a piece of chocolate Can help sweeten the moment And it's always a welcome gift Up next, Fred Plotkin helps us find the best chocolate in Europe We're at 877-333-7425 And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com and make a point to be with us next week when we revisit European Christmas traditions with some of our old friends on Travel with Rick Steves. He's documented the local culinary traditions of Italy better than anybody in his guidebook, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. That, plus his expertise on opera, earned Fred Plotkin a Cavalieri title from the government of Italy. In promoting the finer things of life, Fred calls himself a pleasure activist. He's our favorite connoisseur at Travel with Rick Steves, and Fred joins us now to look for the best chocolates in Europe. Fred, good to have you back. Delicious to be with you. (laughs) Delicious. Fred, why would someone actually travel to some place for quality chocolate instead of just going across the street? Isn't a chocolate bar a chocolate bar? A chocolate bar is not a chocolate bar. Depending which country you go to, they have different traditions. And I think we evolve our taste based on which traditions we connect with. I, with so many things, connect to Italy, but other people find great chocolate in Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Spain, if you like hot chocolate to drink. It's everywhere. Americans have their chocolate, but I find it a little too commercial tasting, a little too studied. But I'd rather Hmm. go to places where they actually have worked with chocolate for a long time. So what do you mean commercial tasting and a little too studied? If you put a chocolate bar in front of me, and by the way, the chocolate bar was invented in Torino in Italy in 1846. But if you put it in front of me and I taste it and smell it, I can tell you how much sugar is in it, whether it has milk solids as opposed to real milk, whether it has any milk at all. That's not because I'm a pleasure activist. It's because everything has a different smell. We in America like sort of sweet, slightly gummy chocolate. In Belgium, they like crunchy, very dark chocolate. In Italy, they sometimes blend nuts in or different things that give chocolate a different flavor. The Italians like a more forward-tasting chocolate, 
Other nations like a powdery chocolate. I can taste the powder when I go to England, for example. They like that taste. Now, when you go to Spain, you get the famous sort of chocolate pudding that you dip your churros in. Is is that considered a, a quality chocolate? It is, and actually Spain is so important for chocolate because it's the place where chocolate arrived in Europe. When Spain conquered Mexico, they tasted this fantastic beverage in Mexico that was chocolatl, spelled with an X at the start and ending with an L. And it was a drink that was not sweet. It had hot peppers in it. It had a secret ingredient in it, which was vanilla. And it was a magnificent beverage. When the Spanish took chocolate back to Spain, it never tasted so good because the Mexicans never told them about the vanilla. But gradually, the Spanish began to heat the chocolate, make it very thick, and dip their sweet pastries in it. So in Europe, very important, the font of all chocolate is Spain. And this is why the British have very different chocolate. Because in 1588, when the Spanish and the British were fighting, Queen Elizabeth said no chocolate. So she was the first person to have vanilla. And the great vanilla tradition in Europe is in England. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin. Fred's our go-to guy for pleasure activism. Fred knows how to enjoy the delights of Europe, that's for sure. Fred's uh, book is Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Lynn's calling in from Paris. Lynn, thanks for your call. Hello, gentlemen. When I go to Paris, by the way, uh, people always have their favorite cafe for for hot chocolate. Uh, Are you into that at all, Lynn? Oh, my goodness. You have no idea who you're talking to. I I work for an airline. I'm a flight attendant, but I happen to live in Paris, and I am the vice president of activities for the American Women's Group. So when I was in Spain on a layover, I discovered the hot chocolate. I thought there was nothing better. Mr. Pocken, I went to Valor, and I had the flight of hot chocolate from white hot chocolate, dark hot chocolate, a cold... French chocolate. It was everything, and I never tasted anything so good. So I decided that I would put a hot chocolate group together for my ladies in Paris. I will never drink hot chocolate again in Spain. I used to think it was great. There is nothing like Paris, and I really thought I was going to be disappointed over here. Lynn, give us the practical travel tip. Where would you say we go for the ultimate Parisian-style hot chocolate? Okay, I'm going to give you two that are my top, top places. One is Un de Manche à Paris. I can never say it right for the French people to understand me, so please forgive me if there are French people out there. Uh-huh. And for €6.50, you get the best hot chocolate. And you could also go for a €2 shot of it on their uh, patisserie end. And then the other fantastic place, honestly, is Georges Sank. And I'm taking my ladies there next week, and you're lucky if you can get a reservation. But the reason why it's so wonderful there is, yes, it's delicious, but then you get the flowers by Jeff Latham and served in a way that you can't imagine. And they also give you, uh, the only place in Paris that I know of that gives you marshmallows, handmade marshmallows that they make there, and little pellets of chocolate that melt at the very bottom of the cup. (laughs) When you get to the bottom of the cup, it's great. But in terms of the quality of their hot chocolate, you're paying 25 euros, but you're getting a production. So 
from the bottom end of the spectrum to the top, those would be the two places I would name for you. Lynn, you've triggered a Proustian memory for me. My very (laughs) first flight alone, I was five years old, and they put a tag on me in New York and sent me on Eastern Airlines to Daytona Beach. And we had a lot of turbulence, and the flight attendant who was assigned to me thought that I would calm down, I wasn't upset, if she gave me hot chocolate. So my first association with a beverage in flying was hot chocolate, and we did have turbulence. I got it all over me, but I was very happy. <laughs> That's a great memory. So now, Did you have a Madeline with it? Not on Eastern Airlines. <laughs> Lynn, what is your experience being a chocolate connoisseur yourself uh, when you go to Belgium? Because I know Belgium has all sorts of uh, very proud chocolate uh, makers. Well, on my first flight with my airline going to Brussels, I was so excited. And of course, I was going to ask a local where should I go for the best chocolate? And I picked Mr. Passenger sitting in front of me, and I had no idea what I was in for. So he just looked at me, and he said, well, if you're going for truffles, you go to this place. And if you're going for dark chocolate, you go to that place. And by the time he finished with me with about 12 different places for the kind of chocolate you would only go to for that store, he ended with, and ever since the Americans took over Godiva, it's never been the same. <laughs> well, it's owned by Campbell's Soup, it's true. Hey, Lynn, well, thanks for your insights, and enjoy your chocolate there in Paris, okay? Thank you. Bye now. <laughs> Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin. He's our pleasure activist. Fred's the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, when you think about chocolate in Belgium, I, that's really for so many people, the reason they go to Belgium. What's your experience with Belgian chocolate? Well, I discovered that the Belgians consume chocolate differently from the rest of us, which is to say that, well, I might savor one piece and let it dissolve in my mouth and then have another after 10 minutes. I went to the opera recently in Ghent, and I was in a box, and seated next to me was a family that brought a very large gold box full of chocolates, And throughout the opera, the way we might eat popcorn at a movie, they were eating chocolates and passing the box to me (laughs) and offering it to everyone else. And there was nothing wrong with eating about 20 chocolates during La Forza del Destino. I was sated with about four, but they ate everything. (laughs) And apparently chocolate is just consumed continuously, keeps them happy, I guess. The Belgians. In Belgium, I learned that people like fresh chocolate. I, I never even thought about fresh chocolate, but they like to buy it and and eat it quickly while it's still fresh. There is a museum on the Grand Place in Brussels called the Chocolate Museum, where you can learn to make chocolate and where you taste fresh chocolate, because it is part of their passion to have fresh chocolate. Yeah, and a lot of chocolate shops that make their own chocolate, when it's too hot, they actually have to close down. It's true. In in southern countries, in the Mediterranean, they don't make certain chocolates in the summer at all. Many chocolate shops close the way ice cream shops shut in January. Is that the mark physically of, of good chocolate, that it doesn't have things inside of it that help it survive the heat? I think so, because you want freshly made chocolates, and better to have fewer but that they be really good than eat mass quantities of indifferent. The Belgians eat mass quantities of delicious. When people talk in Belgium about truffles, what do they mean? Well, truffles are chocolate candies that have added flavors. So it might be nuts, it might be 
alcoholic beverages. It might be dried fruit. And they are bonbons or truffles. Truffles typically have two kinds of chocolate within them and then a flavoring such as, say, ground pistachio or orange peel. I'm not a fan. I'll be blunt. I prefer real chocolate. Mm-hmm. And then if I want pistachios, I'll eat pistachios. You've mentioned, Fred, that the cities you would go to to enjoy chocolate are Turin, Brussels, and Barcelona. Can you take us through those three cities and and help us know as travelers why we would go there to really appreciate chocolate on our chocolate pilgrimage? Now, people would accuse me of being pro-Italian in everything, and I'm not pro-Italian in everything, but a lot of things. But I, if I only could pick one city in the world for chocolate, it would be Turin or Torino. Hmm. It has a magnificent tradition in that it's near France. It was under the royal family of Italy, the Savoys. They had lands in Switzerland. So the chocolatiers drew from those different places. Plus, there was a relationship with Naples, which was a great chocolate town because of Spain. Hmm. So one year, someone, some genius in Torino, we don't know who it was, decided, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to preserve chocolate and eat it rather than just drink it. And the chocolate bar was invented with the addition of some milk solids. Then they gradually learned how to do it with fewer milk solids and just make it dark chocolate. So the fact that you can buy and travel with a piece of chocolate and eat it when you want is down to Torino. Another thing about Torino and Piemonte, the region around it, is that it's full of magnificent nuts, especially walnuts and above all, Mm. hazelnuts. And one time there was not enough chocolate available. So they ground up hazelnuts, which were abundant, and invented something called janduya. And janduya is this amazing mixture of hazelnut and chocolate. It's not one or the other, it's both. We think of Nutella as a very commercial version of that, but I want you to go to Torino to go to a shop such as Strata or Barati e Milano. There are many shops throughout the city, all of which do their own janduya. They're wrapped in gold, and they look like little ingots. They're magnificent. But this is the original Nutella? This is the gold standard. And what is the word again? Janduya, G-I-A-N-D-U-I-A, like, John, do you want to go to Torino? Is how I always say it. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Hey, by the way, uh, Greg in Bay City, Michigan, emailed us, and he's on the trail for a chocolate drink called Bicerin. Bicerin. I was about to mention Bicerin. Bicerin was invented in a cafe in Torino that I think opened in 1765. And what's distinct about that cafe is from the very beginning, it's been owned and run by women. And Giacomo Puccini, who did La Boheme for Torino, loved to go to that cafe because he loved women. And they invented the bicidine, which is a combination of chocolate, coffee, and milk, but that miraculously stays separate. So it comes to you in a glass in levels, in strata, and you drink through it. It's kind of like a cappuccino with the addition of chocolate. It sounds wonderful. It's heaven. And then what about uh, Brussels and Barcelona for our big three? Brussels, we've discussed a fair amount because of the tradition of making boxes of chocolate, little truffles, little pieces of chocolate of all kinds, plus their museum. What I like is when you're on the Grand Place, Fred, there must be 
five different very proud with long heritage chocolate specialty shops almost in a row. And you can just browse your way right down and each one will have its own local fans and royal endorsements and so on. But they've got this just enticing array of uh, a variety of chocolates that you can put together and buy by the weight. You say browse, I say stagger. (laughs) Stagger. Well, you can eat 20 chocolates at an opera and walk out of there, so (laughs) you're a special man. Okay, take us to Barcelona. Barcelona's particular because it's very close to where chocolate landed in Spain and then was spread throughout Europe, but also because the Spanish have it as a beverage. They like it very dark, and they have a chocolate museum in Barcelona, in Catalan, I cannot pronounce the Catalan word for chocolate. (laughs) And you go there and they make sculptures out of chocolate. They will have the David by Michelangelo or the Pieta by Michelangelo, or they will have a Salvador Dali chocolate. And this is the Catalan fantasy for combining art and food. Mm. It still tastes good, Mm -hmm. but it's that they see chocolate as something to work with, whereas the people, say, in, in Brussels or Torino, see it as something you want to eat. It's like butter sculptures in Iowa. Right. Now, of all the uh, travels you've done, is there one chocolate museum that you'd put on your list as the as the best? I've, I've been to one in uh, Cologne and one in Bruges and one in Brussels. Uh, I think the one in Brussels. The Brussels one, yeah. Just off the Grand Place, yes. Now, you don't mention Switzerland. And when people go to Switzerland, they're all crazy about Swiss chocolate. It's it's one of the affordable delights of Switzerland. Is it, is it just the altitude that gets people all hot <laughs> on Swiss chocolate? An apple off a tree is an affordable delight in Switzerland, but I find Swiss chocolate, if I can generalize, a little too commercial. Right. It's of good quality, but there are famous companies in Switzerland, and there's a standardization about it that I find a little boring. Hmm. I prefer the hmm. individualism in Belgium or Torino or Paris or Vienna mm-hmm. or even good chocolate makers in the United States who express something. There's a little company in Portland called Alma. It's a little shop, and they do Portland, Oregon, and they do very good chocolate there. Mm. So we do have it in the U.S. Yeah. Would you put England in the same category of Switzerland as good chocolate but kind of commercial and predictable? They like a different taste. They love their Cadbury, Mm -hmm. and they're very nostalgic about it, and I think Mm. it's all right. It's just not to my taste. But similarly, Mm -hmm. I prefer Belgium to France. I think that Mm -hmm. I love France for many things, Mm -hmm. but the chocolate to me is just not at the same level. Same with the Netherlands. I prefer Belgium to the Netherlands. Oh, yeah, Belgium. You know, when I'm in Bruges, I I love to visit the various coffee shops, and they're run by proud families. And one concern I have is some of them are just old school and pure, and others are very creative in their goofy flavors. They've got, you know, guacamole flavored and... uh, you name it, they've got wild, unpredictable flavors. What is your take on that? Have you noticed that trend of of over-the-top flavors? I have, and that's just foodie. And as you know, in my vocabulary, foodie is a curse word. So (laughs) it's just about when you're not true to the ingredients, when you don't study and learn the heritage and the inherent properties. That's why drinking chocolate in Mexico is still a pleasure, because Mm. they make it as they always have, Mm. with hot peppers and a little bit of vanilla. And it's amazing. This has been so appetizing, intriguing, inspiring, talking with Fred Plotkin about chocolate. And, you know, I think a a takeaway from this discussion, Fred, is if you know a little bit about the heritage uh, of chocolate, it makes the chocolate tasting more rewarding. 
That and don't wolf it down. Put one little piece in your mouth, let it melt, savor it, let it touch your cheeks, your tongue, and the roof of your mouth. You'll get stereophonic experiences from it in a way that you do not if you gulp chocolates and swallow it right away. Pleasure activist, Fred Plotkin. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You'll find links to Fred Plotkin's books and blogs about opera and great food with this week's show notes. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, Travel with Rick Steves listeners tell us what they found in Europe when they decided to go on vacation during the holidays. We're at 877-333-7425. Some years, it just might be more fun to spend part of the holiday season traveling abroad rather than staying home. It gives you an opportunity to broaden your view of Christmas and to see how other countries celebrate the holidays. We'll get a sense of the traditions you'll find in Prague this time of year from a Czech friend in just a bit. First, let's check in with our listeners at 877-333-RICK to hear how travels during the holidays worked out for them. Neil in Milwaukee, Wisconsin is calling in. Hey, Neil. How are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm great. And you're right. It is a great opportunity to travel. We, after many years of spending the holidays here in the Midwest with family, convinced ourselves that we could be gone for uh, for Christmas. And year after year, had some great adventures in places like Zermatt and Paris and Wengen and even Las Vegas and a cruise. But the uh, European Christmas vacations were uh, some of our all-time favorites for the family. What is one of your favorite memories? One of them is, first of all, just spending all of the time with the family, uh, maybe sitting under a warm blanket on a balcony overlooking uh, Vengen as the snow falls and uh, having perhaps a, uh, a glass of wine. Neil, let's, let's explain what Vengen's all about. Paint a picture for us. What, what do you see from that balcony? Vengen is perhaps the perfect Swiss village, car-free, up overlooking the, uh, the Lauterbrunnen Valley, a great place if you want to ski, a great place if you want to sled, but just the classic Swiss chalets, one after another with a dusting of snow, a great opportunity to walk a short distance down into the village and uh, a short street of shops, and uh, just an absolutely Picture perfect with the lights twinkling across the oh. valley from some of the other chalets. I love it. You're right under the Eiger Monk and Jungfrau, that most incredible alpine panorama. Absolutely. And, of course, one of the other things that is different that time of year is food is different. The food in many places is different in December than it is uh, on a July vacation. And so that raclette or fondue that you might have after a day of skiing is particularly perfect in cold weather. It's a great warm dish to huddle around and uh, have a conversation with your friends. So we've, we've done that. Uh, some of the bakers have a, a great scheme where they set up a little table out in front of their bakery in the village at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So as everyone is coming down from the ski hill, they're making Berliners, the powdered sugar dusted and jelly-filled donuts that are warm and uh, being made right there on the street. It is impossible to walk by uh, without having at least one on your way back to the chalet. That sounds so nice. You know, that's so true in Switzerland. The seasonal food is nice, and a lot of tourists are just hell-bent on having fondue or raclette in the summer, but it's just not quite right in the summer. In the winter, the melted cheese dishes really are appropriate. That's when the Swiss are enjoying them. And 
then there are some things you had always heard about from your childhood, but I had never actually seen chestnuts roasting on an open fire until uh, walking through uh, Zermatt one night during the Christmas season, and uh, the street vendors were out with their uh, their chestnuts, which uh, smelled, of course, wonderful. Mm. So it, you, you learned the reality of what had been a childhood song or myth. Yeah, and the, they have these logs that are sort of jammed into the ground and they're split and then they soak them with tar and they're just like torches, big torches, and they'll stand around that with their hot mulled wine and their chestnuts. And it's it's that conviviality. They they come together around a fire, they come together around a, a, a bowl of uh, fondue cheese and they just really connect it during the holidays. Absolutely. And these villages, the fact, I think partially that they're car-free, whether it's Zermatt or Wangen, and the only thing gliding through the village on a layer of snow is um, perhaps a horse-drawn sleigh taking tourists from the train station to their hotel or their chalet, or even uh, women pushing what would be wheeled strollers here in the States in the summer, pushing uh, small buggies like that with runners over the snow. Oh, I didn't it know just, that. So they've got, they've got baby carriages that are on sled runners. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, and that's it's beautiful. Just, it, it's gorgeous. And you don't have, you know, some uh, carbon monoxide uh, headache. Have you been in Zermatt and Wengen in the holiday season? No, I've, I've been in Wengen a lot, but I've never been in Zermatt in the winter. That, of course, is the touristy resort at the foot of the Matterhorn, whereas yep. Wengen is the uh, resort at the foot of the, uh, the Jungfrau. Uh, yep. How would you compare the two uh, mountain resorts in Switzerland? Um, you're right. Uh, Zermatt is perhaps a little more touristy. I do remember uh, the kids window shopping, trying to decide whether the 80,000 euro or the 100,000 euro watch was better. Uh, and, uh, and Wengen is, is much more of a um, smaller family, intimate, um, not a lot of you know, shops aimed at tourists. It, it's just perhaps a more family feel for the, yeah. uh, for the holidays. Well, Neil, thank you so much for sharing. And I think the point you make, you don't need to stay home for the holidays. I've freed myself from that notion many years ago, and I've had so many great memories enjoying the holidays with loved ones, with family, but far away. Yes, your friends and relatives will forgive you. They may be envious, but they will forgive you for being gone, and you and your family will have memories for a lifetime. Thanks for your call, Neil, and uh, uh, let's talk again uh, soon, I hope. Thank you. Garrett's on the phone in Chicago. Hi, Garrett. Oh, hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. What are your uh, thoughts about Christmas time in Europe? Uh, well, three years ago, I was fortunate enough to spend Christmas in Venice. And, you know, Venice is such a magical place anyway. But, I mean, Christmas time, it was really, truly enchanting. Um, and I think it's a good time to see Venice for as a village, you know, as a community. Because instead of seeing hordes of tourists, or day trippers coming in from cruise ships, just overwhelming the place. We actually saw locals just, you know, just doing their usual holiday stuff, just hurrying about, shopping for gifts, and getting ready for Christmas. So it was quite a neat experience, and there were no crowds at all, so it was very easy to get around, and all the attractions were still open, except for Christmas Day, obviously, and the 26th, which is also a holiday in Italy. So yeah. you were actually there on Christmas? Yeah, yeah, and one of our fear was we were afraid that nothing would be open, but actually everything was open, and all the churches, all the museums were open, except for the 24th and the, and the 25th, and definitely the 26th, they because were still closed. I've been in St. Mark's Basilica so many times, and it's so 
lavish and glittering with gold and all that Romanesque and Byzantine sort of aura to it. And I thought, what a beautiful place that would be on a Christmas Eve mass. Oh, my God. That's actually one of the memories that I will treasure for the rest of my life, I think, was being there for a Christmas Eve mass. We went there. We took the Valparetto. We huddled with all of these other Italians, all ages, and there were even some clergy people in in the boat. And then we got there, and the place was just aglow with the golden light from the mosaics, you know, because they had it all lit up. And then you have the incense and the priest saying mass in Italian, and it, it it was packed, and it was packed with locals. And we were just sitting there thinking, my God, you know, we're... We're doing something that's been going on for like a thousand years, you know. Yeah. Now, Venice is... It was quite overwhelming. You know, Venice, sometimes you you get the sense that Venice is just a small town. And it sounds like, I would imagine there, it would feel like the whole town was gathered together in one big medieval church. Yeah, it it was truly spectacular. And that year, they had unusually a lot of snow in northern Italy, and they also had aqua alta, so... So the city, the city that, was flooded. Aqua Alta is when they get a certain barometric pressure and a high tide and everything coinciding and a wind, and, and, the, and the city floods, and St. Mark's is the lowest part of the city, so it floods first, the big square there. Did the water actually go into the church? Almost, but on the way back to the hotel after Mass, we had to wade through like maybe a foot of um, Aqua Alta, and there was flooding like the day after we were there, too. So we had to wade through the uh, cold waters of the Adriatic. But, you know, huh. I mean, hey, it was, it was cold, it was damp, but it was, it was a great experience. So you'd recommend Christmas in Venice, then? Absolutely. No crowds, and it's probably the most memorable Christmas I've ever spent. Great. Thanks, Garrett, for the tip. Well, thank you very much, Rick. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Our Travel with Rick Steves listeners are telling us about their memorable year-end travels at 877-333-7425. Melinda's on the phone in Norfolk, Virginia. Melinda, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Tell us about a Christmas time you've had in Europe. Well, it was quite a surprise. We were actually just going through but decided to stop in Nuremberg for the day. And there's a wonderful Christmas market there that was a complete surprise to me. I didn't realize they had one of the largest ones in Europe. Oh, that's the famous one. I think that's the biggest and the best in Germany, they say. Yeah, it was. It really was magical. I mean, all the lights were beautiful. And, and we were there early in the day, then went to some museums, and then we came back in the evening. And during the day, it had this carnival feel. All the kids were out. There were little rides for them. And then we came back in the evening, and everything was lit up. It was just breathtaking, and, you know, the, uh, you got to have some gingerbread. and some The gingerbread is a long-standing tradition in Nuremberg, isn't it? They're very proud of that. It is, and they come in all different types of shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. and they're really good, and you can get them packaged up to take with you. It's a classy market. It's filling the square there in front of the church. It's the best Christmas market I've ever seen, and uh, I thought it was very... Um, elegant. They must have some regulations because I know that the knickknacks have to be, they all have all these little carved goodies for your Christmas tree and so on, but they they don't like it imported from China or something like that. They they like locally made uh, handicrafts. Right. They had some beautiful woodwork and crafts and handmade ornaments. They were really lovely. Great idea to take home to people. What do you remember as far as uh, eating and drinking during those festive times at the market in Nuremberg during Christmas? Different bread products that, you know, you can pick up, the gingerbread, the warmed wine, of course, lots of roasting chestnuts, 
and nuts. So mm. we just kind of snacked our way through. You know, one of my favorite snacks, uh, Melinda, is the little tiny sausages. They're about the size of your little finger. They're called the Nuremberg sausages. And you get three of them with beautiful mustard on a little tiny bun. And it's just a delightful snack when you're roaming through the Christmas market in Nuremberg. Did you try any of those Nuremberger sausages? Yes, they're delicious. And my husband loves the mustard just as much as the sausage. Mm. (laughs) And then I noticed it was kind of classy. They didn't have any disposable glasses. Everybody was drinking their hot mulled wine. But you give a, a little deposit, and they give you a ceramic cup, and you have to bring it back to get your deposit back. Correct, yeah. It was just very neat. I mean, one of the best. I've been to you know, a couple other markets, like in Austria, but this one just really had that Christmas feel, really you know, magical feel to it. It was a really great day, and it's just beautiful in southern Germany at Christmas time. What are you going to do for your next Christmas in Europe? Where would you like to go? Um, we have some family um, in from Poland, so probably Krakow. Uh, that would be beautiful. Krakow would be as magical as Nuremberg easily. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what it's like and comparing it. We we have had Christmas in Paris before, but it was kind of disappointing compared to after being in Nuremberg. It didn't compare. Yeah. Well, I think our, our image of Christmas is, you know, the Christmas markets and the glue vine and all of that beautiful little uh, carvings and wonderful German handicrafts hanging from the tree and so on. Melinda, thanks for your call, and uh, Merry Christmas. All right. Merry Christmas. It truly is a jewel box of a city. And as Christmas approaches, you'll find that Prague takes on an extra sparkle that really warms up the holiday spirit. Katerina Svobodova grew up in Prague back when Czechoslovakia was under Soviet influence. Still, Christmas time held a magical feeling for her, and you can find even more of it today. Katerina, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting. What happens in Prague on Christmas? Well, first of all, the whole city is changing because of the lights going on, and hopefully, if we have snow, also some ice skating rinks around are set up in the city center, What is quite amazing that you can be kind of skating and looking around the architecture. <laughs> and then the markets. Oh, we just love those. Christmas markets. Uh-huh. So what would you find in a Christmas market? Well, you can buy, you know, we are quite famous for producing the glass ornaments, oh, yeah. either to the Christmas tree or just, you know, to decorate your house. So... These are the ones where you can get them. And then, of course, it's more about the food and drink, too, what you can get in the markets. Now, in the Czech Republic, is there a Santa Claus figure? Well, we are not very much into that. We have our own. What, what do you have? We call him Ježíšek. Ježíšek. It's little baby Jesus, if okay. translated. Sort of like the Christkind in Germany. Uh-huh. Does the little baby Jesus uh, give gifts? Yeah, the Does little they, baby Jesus, every kid is expecting him to come. The little to, baby Jesus will come to your house and give gifts? Yeah. Normal, is it actually a little boy? or? It's actually very difficult to describe. It's like an angel or something? Yeah. A lot of people think that, yeah, he looks like an angel. A lot of people have that impression. It is the baby Jesus like you can find in the nativity scenes, you yeah. know? Like that real so, baby. But there's sort of just a gift-giving spirit of Christmas that yeah. comes. Yeah, and no one ever seen him, of course. That's the okay. point. <laughs> but do the, the children actually anticipate gifts? And will that be in the morning, on Christmas morning? Uh, no, we actually celebrate it on the December 24th in so the So when does evening. the baby Jesus come then? In the evening. He comes and nobody sees him. Yeah, that's always that you have the window open. So you just let him go in while you are eating your Christmas dinner. 
in the other room. He's bringing the presents at the same time. And once you finish the Christmas dinner, then you go to the next room. So as a little girl, how could you concentrate on the food? Oh, that was hard. Oh, my God. And then also I remember because we like to eat the carp fish. Yeah. It's very bony. And I had to wait until everyone finished his his uh, plate, what was really very difficult, but I managed. You mean it was hard for you to figure out how to eat the carp? You yeah, were so, because with so many bones. You were discombobulated. Because yeah, yeah. baby Jesus is coming through the window. Sure, You've I got all these to, presents waiting for you. I wanted to be next door already uh, getting my presents. But yeah, we still keep this tradition. What are your best memories as a little child of Christmas in the Czech Republic? This you was actually in communist in times. In communist times, exactly. It's actually interesting that we kept this kind of uh, secret and spirit, and so even during the times, you know, what was very because the communist government un- tried yeah. to stop this, I would imagine. That's that's right, but still, it just you know was the, the magic of Christmas. So the magic of Christmas survived the communist dark age. Yeah, really. and of course, it's more like a family gathering uh, right. event, also very important. So, in the Czech Republic, what was the best holiday food or or dessert or drink that you remember for the Christmas period? Yeah. Uh-huh. I would say that one of the greatest parts of this is that we love to bake the little cookies. Oh, yeah. And we have so many different kinds. You know, it's very common that you go family by family and they have like 12 or 15 or even 20 different kinds of these little tiny cookies. And it's everyone's like family's recipe. And then we, of course, like compare, you know, what is better in this family or that family. And it still goes on. And we just, yeah, we just love this. So this is like only what you get during Christmas time. You just don't get these like vanilkový rohlíček. That's like a little vanilla roll. Uh-huh. But it's actually small, like half of your palm or even that. And so these are just for Christmas available. And then even for me to have a potato salad any other time than Christmas time, it's strange because it's so much tight. Also, the smells, you know, the, how whatever, like, either the baking the cookies or then frying the fish and that, that's so much tied to the Christmas time. So whenever, if I am offered this some other time in a year, it's like, this is kind of strange. I can't eat it when can't it's can't eat this potato salad now. It's May. not Christmas. Yeah, just at that time. Do you have children? Yes, I do. How old are your children? I have two boys. One is four years old, and the other one will be two. Wow, perfect time for mm-hmm. the Christmas uh, mystery. Yes, that's and, right. And what kind of childhood memories are you giving your children? I mean, do you celebrate Christmas the same way your parents celebrated we, when you were little? Yeah, yeah, we do, actually. We try to keep, just the only thing is we don't eat carp, but we eat other fish, but otherwise we... Do you leave we, the window open? Yes, yes, we do. Of course, in our apartment where we live, it's a little more difficult because we have the kitchen together in a room where we have the Christmas tree. So it is kind of tricky to put the presents there in, <laughs> in between the, you know, in between uh, the dinner. But still, we yeah, we managed. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun in the Czech Republic during Christmas time. Oh yeah. And how do you say Merry Christmas in Czech? Vesele Vánoce. Vesele Vánoce. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Naschledanou. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to WSHU Fairfield, Connecticut, and WBEZ Chicago for their help this week. Next week, Rick learns about the colorful Christmas traditions of his friends in Europe. Wherever your travels take you, we all wish you a peaceful and warm holiday season. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, 
a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.